Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second episode of the Global Health Impact Fund podcast. I'm your host, Martin Eels, and we are super excited you're joining us on this journey where we cover everything investor-related and health-related. Last episode, we covered how to become an investor. If you've not listened to this yet, we highly recommend you do. And if you liked the episode, we would really appreciate if you could follow and give us a five-star rating so we can reach a bigger audience on these podcast channels. So in today's episode, we will talk about how to understand venture capital. Again, I'm so lucky to have me with my amazing co-host, Oren, co-founder, CEO of the Global Health Impact Fund. Oren, it's great to have you here again. Thanks, Martin. It's a pleasure to be here, and, and I really enjoyed our first episode. I look forward to this one as well. Awesome. So let's jump into today's episode, if you're ready, which is how to understand venture capital. So Oren, like, you know, what are the first things a person should know about venture capital? That's a really great question. And um, I think the way to approach that is to think about venture capital as an accelerant. Uh, if you're, you know, like fireman talk. And um, so people typically use venture capital either for a seed sort of you're taking an idea from, you know, to make it into a business and you need to seed the business. And so you can use venture for that or you can use it for exponential growth. So it's either growth capital or seed capital typically. And the reasons for that is that the people who invest in venture capital, um, we say there's an expectation of a return, but but perhaps a better way to describe it is that there is a an expectation of a projected return, because of course you could lose everything in, in venture, um, like any investment. But you have to be able to demonstrate a certain uh, amount of return that is commensurate to the risk that you're taking. You know, at a seed stage, a company has a very high likelihood of failing. And so there's a lot of risk there. And so nobody wants to put that their money there. Nobody wants to invest if there's not going to be a high potential for return. Similarly, with growth capital, you're theoretically using that capital to create exponential growth within a company, that growth should reflect as exponential value creation. So um, in healthcare, for example, you know, we, we feel that there's a lot of risk in early stage companies. And so when we make an investment in the, you know, sort of seed to series A stage, we really want to see a demonstrable 20 to 30x return on investment. Now that doesn't mean they're going to get there, but if they can't even demonstrate that, uh, on paper with assumptions, then the return profile of that investment's not appropriate for the venture, uh, you know, investor. So what's the difference between a venture capital firm and a venture capital fund? Martin, that's a really good question. And it's just a structural answer, which is that a venture capital firm uh, can run many funds. And so you have your overall firm and you have funds within the firm. Each fund can have its own structure. Obviously, when you're a single fund within a single firm, it's really hard to differentiate between the two. But um, but but that's the only difference. So each fund becomes its own essential entity, but then the infrastructure around managing the fund and you know analysis and deal flow and so forth as as your fund family grows, you, the firm, you know, creates a bigger footprint and that, that has a lot of advantages. Okay. So like, 
who in the firm or in the fund who will manage the venture capital funds so so structurally speaking each fund has a fairly simple structure you have limited partners who are investors they're limited meaning that they're investors but they're not expected to do anything and they have a limited liability and so it's a real favorable structure for the investors the general partners are the partners who really manage you know who run the fund they raise the money and so forth and typically the management partners are also part of the the general partners are also part of the management team uh, but the management team can actually be outsourced to a second entity and there's a management fee that funds typically charge and so typically it's the general partners who make up the management team but you know the Venn diagram doesn't have to be two perfect circles on top of each other. Obviously, some of the GPs' responsibilities will be raising funds from the LPs, sourcing the top startups, mm -hmm. performing due diligence, you know, delivering returns back to investors. Right. Have I missed anything? I know these yeah, are the key so, ones. You no, know, those are the key ones. But I, I think it's helpful, you know, in, in as an explanation to sort of walk through the journey of a fund rather than the journey of a, of a general partner. And if you think about it from ideation of the fund, you know, the desire to put it together, you first have to get legal documents together and things like that. Then you have to raise capital. Raising capital is, it can be very challenging, especially for an early or an emerging fund manager uh, because you have no track record. Um, and then you also have to get deal flow. You, so you have to, you know, have networks and get access to deals. And it's hard to just one day decide to be a venture capitalist, all of a sudden have all of those um, potential limited partners that you could speak with that, you know, requires a lot of networking and, you know, real like gumshoe, you know, you know, what, what's the expression, you know, you know, walking, you know, pounding the pavement to talk to people whether it's virtual or not. And then also the deal flow, you wanna have access to deals. And that means you have to be a part of a community and an ecosystem. You know, for instance, at our fund, we speak very regularly in a lot of different, um, you know, events and pitch events and panels. Uh, plus we've developed, you know, over years, relationships with academic centers and other, you know, really great areas for deal flow. So, you know, we have our own organic deal flow coming in that we've developed over the years. And then we're also out there looking, you know, for good deals. So that's the beginning of it. Then you have to have a process for evaluating companies. And we talk, you know, very commonly about the filter and most venture capital companies look at, you know, tens to hundreds of companies for each one that they ultimately invest in. And this is one of the dirty little secrets. Maybe it's not dirty or secret. <laughs> You know, an interesting way to look at it, which is that venture capitalists will, for the most part, say no, because they're making very few investments. If you have a hundred million dollar fund, you're not making a hundred million investments. You're making five, 10, 20 investments, um, maybe more, but not a lot considering the number of deals you look at. And some people say that venture capitalists are always looking for a reason to say no. And so it, I think as a startup um, founder, you know, you really have to take that into consideration that no is the most common answer and that you have to really 
understand your company from all sides because a, a VC is going to really pick things apart because they're looking for reasons why it won't succeed because ultimately their goal is to get a healthy return on investment. And if there are obvious problems at the outset, then that's that's a real red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, so then when you get past the due diligence phase, then you negotiate your deal terms, you know, and you think about, you know, how you position yourself as an active investor or a passive investor. And then once you've made an investment, in many ways, to me, the most exciting part is how you get in and help the companies. And so a, a good venture capitalist isn't going to be a passive investor. I, I guess there are many who do that, who invest as follow-on investors, but we like to be you know, very active with our companies and really support them. And you know, as they say, to bend the success curve favorably. So we wanna see our companies be successful in as short a time possible and success for the venture capital situation, you know, being defined as having an exit, a favorable exit. So that's that's all of that's important. And then at the end of that journey is their exit themselves and building relationships with corporates and acquirers or helping them with an IPO uh, exit. Those are all really important. Yeah. So let's jump back um, a few steps. Like, you know, where we say VC say no quite often, like they have a hundred million dollar fund. So they invest in 20 companies and say use 30 million. Like, why do you think VC funds hold on to the majority of the money? You know, is it for, to invest in future rounds of the firm, like the companies they invested in? Or is it just because they are looking for that home run startup? And they do see a lot of startups and a lot of them, you know, are different from one in each other. And it's like, it's like you said last episode, it all comes down to the team. What can a founder do to get more of a yes than the general no? Well, that's a really good question. So I'll uh, let me let me take the first part and then the second part. So in terms of why doesn't a VC, if they have seventy million dollars of dry powder, why aren't they deploying it? Well, one of the one of the things that people learn is that as a VC, let's say you have that whole fund committed. You don't want to call that money. In other words, you don't want to bring it internally until you're ready to use it because you're being judged on your internal rate of return, which has a component of time. So if you've committed, Martin, out of your, you know, you know, family deep wealth, $10 million to my fund, and I don't have something to invest it in today that I'm confident in, I'm going to let you keep that money until I'm ready for it. So you've made a commitment but you're going to hold on to that until I'm ready to invest it. And then I'm going to bring it in. And so that way the clock starts on the day of the investment, not the day you've made a commitment. And that improves my internal rate of return. So, so that's one reason why VCs, you know, don't use their dry powder. So if they just just to problem. clarify on that, if you raise a $30 million fund, it's not like you have $30 million in the bank to invest. You have $30 million committed to invest. You have it committed, and theoretically, you could have access to that money when you want. I mean, you'll have a capital call schedule with your partners, but you don't want to have that money just sitting in the bank, you know, doing nothing because it's just effectively costing your IRR. So you'll call that money, you know, in a fashion that, you know, gives you enough flexibility when you need it, but doesn't doesn't drag your IRR. So that's one thing to think about. Um, 
the second thing I was going to say was that VCs like to reserve a certain amount of their money for follow-on investments. And that's going to probably be probably be industry specific. Certain companies are going to require more follow-on investment than others. Uh, the thing to keep in mind about follow-on investments, there's a couple of reasons strategically why a, a venture capitalist wants to do that. One of them is anti-dilution. So if I buy in at a round and I own 10% of the company, let's say it's worth $10 million or $9 million, and I took the whole round of a million dollars. So now I have a million dollars of equity in a $10 million company. I'm a 10% owner. If we go out to the market at a $20 million valuation to raise more money, my $10 million, my $1 million investment is now worth $2 million, right? But now somebody comes in with a $10 million investment. So now I own 2 million out of 30 million. If I don't invest anything in that round, I own less than 10% of the company at the end of that round. So, you know, sometimes people want to keep money in to keep their uh, proportional amount of shares stable. Now, of course, it's it's you're still gaining money, right, in terms of you know, the value of your equity, but you're losing a percent of ownership, right, because it's a bigger pie. You have a smaller piece of a bigger pie. So that's one reason. The other reason is strategically, you know, the, the first example presumes that that company is going to have an easy time raising money in those next rounds. And sometimes it's not as easy, whether because of internal factors, it's not necessarily the right time, but they need the money or external factors. You have market downturns like we did, you know, in the beginning of COVID. Um, so having, you know, that dry powder for your follow on investment, again, it helps keep your uh, startup companies sustained. So it's it's just good habit, it, you know, if you have a larger fund to do that. It's harder to do that with smaller funds. Um, as you recall, I think we talked about in our first episode, you know, diversification is really critical. So if you invest um, in fewer companies to have follow-on investments, then you may end up with a non-diversified portfolio. And that's also not ideal. So it's it's or with smaller funds, I think it's about balancing those needs. Yeah. Um, and then with larger funds, I think just to rigor, you, you probably leave money on the side so that you can, you know, so that you can do those follow ons. Uh, the second question was, how does a uh, startup get your attention? Was that, was that what you asked me? Yeah, like that works because like VCs, I think their favorite word is no. <laughs> <laughs> it's how can right. we make it a yes? Or make it easier for you to say yes. Well, I think the first thing to is that I would advise startups is that no, no doesn't don't take no personally. There's a lot of reasons people say no. They don't have enough money. They have other commitments. You don't fit their investment thesis. So the first step I would say is if you really want to, you know, if you really want to get a sense of what to expect is the first thing you should do is know something about the VC. In other words, how much money do they have to commit? You know, do they like to re lead rounds? Are they active or passive investors? Is this in their space? Does this fit their thesis? Is the company too early? Is it too late? Et cetera, et cetera. Because a lot of times, you know, it's, it's a matter of you know, I like brunettes and you're a blonde. And so there's nothing we can do about that sort of thing. I mean, something silly, right? You're too early. I don't invest in seed stage rounds and it has nothing to do with you. I love what you're doing. Um, so I think you can depersonalize that if you know more about why they, 
company itself makes decisions. Beyond that, I would say you have to be prepared. You know, in a VC isn't going to ask questions that you shouldn't have already asked and answered yourself. If you're getting yeah. caught, if you're getting caught by a venture capitalist with your questions, unless they're really arcane, um, I think that that means you're not well prepared. And what's your business plan? How do you make money? How do you justify these projections? We don't want to invest. Maybe in the seed stage, you invest in an idea and a team. But certainly when you're getting into Series A and growth capital, you want to see demonstrable smart business making. Um, and sometimes people are too enamored with what they're doing and they don't really get the, the fundamentals of running a business. And that becomes a problem. Yeah, like in my experience, a lot of it comes down to is they don't have a clear vision. Like the the investor, the VC doesn't understand the true problem that you're trying to solve because you've not told the story correctly or the vision correctly. Right. You know, it's funny you say that, Martin. Just to just to piggyback on that idea, one of the things that I've observed, you know, you see a slide deck, and the slide deck can be really clean and simple and very like have a very clear narrative and i like those decks sometimes you can get a deck and it's all over the place and there's tons of words and graphs and charts and pictures and it's just really dense and i it would only it would almost be interesting to see if there's a correlation like a linear correlation between how organized and well thought out the overall business is as compared to what the deck looks like. Yeah. You know? And I really try to urge people to give a clear and concise message. I try to remind startup founders that the takeaway from a deck is three things. Like, that's all I wanna know. Like, like, is it a good business? Who's on the team? And why is this important? You know, um, and sometimes they just, they wanna leave it all on the field. They wanna put it all out there and it's, yeah, you wonder how, how much that's related to maybe the lack of focus, right? In terms of the business, not in terms of the vision or the dream. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to touch on is we talk, you mentioned deal terms very briefly. Like how do you negotiate optimal deal terms? Well, I mean, first, the lead, it's the lead investor who negotiates those terms typically. Okay. Uh, so, so first things first is you have to be designated the lead investor. Um, and one of the reasons you'll be designated the lead investor is because you're making a larger investment or there's a strategic purpose to your investment. So not everybody leads. We, we have led many of our rounds because so we like to lead. How do you decide if you want to lead or be a follower? Well, do the bigger I, VCs normally take the lead or do sometimes the smaller VCs take the lead because it's more of their expertise? Well, I've, we've seen both. I think yeah. it's be on a deal-by-deal -deal basis um, that, that you can take the lead, but typically people have allowed us to take the lead because of our clinical expertise and the stage of the deal. You know, it's really early where there's no market validation. So there are people who want to see the doctors us come in and validate what the companies are doing. So it hasn't been a huge challenge for us. We have not taken the lead in certain deals because the um, we weren't investing enough as compared to the other investors. You know, the, the larger investors 
have the um, sort of the juice to be that lead because being a lead also typically means you end up getting a board seat, you know, and having that governance over time. So what we've endeavored for is to at minimum have boarded observer seats, if not actually be on the board. And we, we do both um, because we like to be involved and, and, you know, drive support from our healthcare network to the companies in terms of the terms themselves. You, you know, you have to have a sense of what the value should be. And you look at, you know, you want to make sure there are privileges like, you know, anti-dilution privileges and things like that. Um, but it's just a conversation. You see, you know, what they're willing to give and you decide what your need to take and you try and find a compromise. I, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people play hardball with that stuff, but I like to think that when you're investing in a company, what you're really doing is it's, you know, it's like getting married and, if you have to have a prenuptial agreement, you at least want it to be a really friendly one, if maybe not even have that. Yeah. So you don't want them to come in feeling, you know, after you invested in them, like they've given up the farm. In my opinion. So to touch on two different points there, um, what are the types of securities that a VC will invest in? And, you know, is this something the lead investor will say, whether it's a convertible note or... Yeah, so so there are uh, several different areas that I'm familiar with that that you see in the venture world. One is venture debt, where they literally charge, you know, create a debt vehicle that gets paid back with the intention of being paid back, and their favorable interest rates and things on that. And some of that can convert, and it depends on the terms, but it's really explicitly a debt vehicle. And I don't I don't really do anything in that area right now. The three. Uh, Securities that we look at typically are either just equity, which is buying shares, and that could be preferred shares or common shares or whatever shares are being offered for that uh, round, or it could be a note. And the two notes that we've, we've worked with are convertible notes. And so convertible notes are basically debts that accrue typically accrue interest. And then at some point with the next fundraising round or some fundraising milestone, they convert to equity and they convert, they often have a cap. So you have um, put a cap on the upside. Uh, you've, you basically put a cap so that if the value of the next round exceeds whatever cap there is, you'll convert at the cap and get the upside between the cap and the share price um, at the, at the you know, next equity round or a safe note, which is basically a simpler, no, it's a secured agreement for future equity is what SAFE stands for, is developed by Y Combinator. And it's basically a simpler version of a note. Okay. And then uh, how do you decide who will sit on the board of the companies that you've invested in? Well, that's a company decision. And they'll okay. typically have board members. And the real question is whether or not uh, someone from your round of raising money will be able to sit on the board and, and if they are, uh, who that will be. And that's a decision typically, I think the lead investor has, you know, sort of the carte blanche to be on the board because they're representing the most amount of money in that round, typically. Um, and alternatively, you know, you can also often obtain a board observer seat, which means you can go to the board meetings, know what's happening, but you don't vote on matters before the board. Those are both good. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about venture investing in the healthcare 
Like it has tremendous amount of innovation and high returns, you know, can outperform the VC industry averages. In your opinion, like what are some of the aspects that you're seeing, especially in the health space? Well, we've just seen across the board, it's revolution. There's so much innovation that the amount of new healthcare startups over the last 10 to 20 years, it's just pretty remarkable. There's a lot of innovation in, you know, in genomics, in material science, in computer science, artificial intelligence and machine learning. You know, across the board, we've just seen lots and lots of fascinating work um, that's being done. And so all of that work creates opportunity. And I think one of the great things about healthcare is that when you discover a drug that treats a specific type of cancer, that's not a drug that's utilization is going to be localized to a small area. That's something that will be global. If you develop a device that can help people with arthritis, that's something that has global reach if it's done properly. And so the ability for these companies, excuse me, the potential for these companies to scale and have exceedingly high value is, is quite profound. So the question isn't the impact the companies can have, but picking the right ones. And I think that's where, you know, that's where we come in and that's sort of the, the secret sauce of it. But, you know, we talk about unicorns being worth what, like a billion dollars. And many of the companies that we invest in have that potential to be billion dollar companies just because of the scale of the need. I think it's important for people to know as well that the venture capital industry, it has four main players. Like it has the entrepreneurs who need the funding. It has the investors who want the high returns. You have the investment bankers who clearly need the companies to sell. And then the guys who make it all happen is the venture capitalist. Um, you know, I think it's important to understand. I do want to touch a little bit on, because um, I know VC versus public market returns. Uh, what have you seen? Because I, I, you've invested in both. Like, I, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Yeah, that, I mean, it's a really interesting dynamic, and there, you know, the public market is great, and you can get in and get out. It's very liquid. Um, it's regulated really well. Uh, so, so the public market has, you know, tr terrific benefits to it. Uh, and you can make small investments, right? In companies, you everybody can buy like a share of Apple and, and be a part of that. But the venture capital market and private equity market, those are private markets. And so they're, they're illiquid assets. So when you buy, when our fund buys equity in a company, there are secondary markets, but they're not great. They're not efficient. You may not be getting you know, your value for your investment if you sell in the secondary market. So really, you're waiting for that liquidity event. Um, so the private markets have their own um, hangups. But at the same time, a lot of the alpha or the profit is being made in the private markets today. And that's really switched over 20 years ago. But companies are going, they're IPOing later. There's a lot of consolidation of companies under larger corporations. And so to really make money in the markets, you know, having at least some 
component of your money being in the private markets is probably really important, I think. And I wouldn't put it all there. Of course, it's riskier and it's also illiquid. So if you have a life change, you can't just immediately get it all out uh, like you could in the stock market. But the profits are really much more in the private markets today. Yeah, I think I was reading somewhere like the average return for the top quartile VC funds is just below 25%. As well, yeah. like the S&P 500, it's like 125 or 12.6%. So, you know, if you're one of those top firms, <laughs> it's good to be an investor. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, there are really good returns potentially. Of course, a lot of VCs don't do well. So, so I mean, I think part of it is you shouldn't just blindly go to a venture capital firm, you want to do your research and make sure that you're comfortable with their history or at least their vision. You know, I think there's a real trust component, but it's also much more personal. Like when you buy a Vanguard fund, you, you don't know who's managing your money. Yeah. The first thing is that when you send in your deck or you get a phone call, the goal isn't to get an investment. The goal is to just get another call or to get a meeting, right? So you, you want to be incremental because part of venture capital investment is developing a relationship and a trust. Um, our latest company that we invested in, I spoke with for close to a year before we made our investment um, and enjoyed those phone calls, but we just, for one reason or another, weren't ready. And I didn't want to say no because I like them, but I didn't want to say yes because I wasn't ready. And it, that year gave me a really good opportunity to get to know how professional and responsible he was. And I think that was really valuable. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is in your story, the three things that you need to tell, and this is true for all companies, not just healthcare, is why this, why now, and why me? Yeah. Very simple. Like if you can communicate those three ideas well and clearly, then, you know, that's that's as compelling a case as you can make. And again, you still may not be right for everyone, yeah. but if you don't communicate those well, you're going to have a problem. I absolutely agree. Like, that's great. Um, do we have time for a few questions? I think we do, right? Yeah, sure. Perfect. So let me have a look here. So the first one is from Michael from New York. He asks, what is the latest stage a single investor can invest in? What is the latest stage a single investor can invest in? Well, I mean, of course, you can invest in the public markets, right? And that's yeah. not, quote unquote, a stage anymore. Um, I guess it depends how much money you have. Uh, <laughs> you know. Like, you know, because you can get involved early in a company with not much money because they're just bootstrapping or doing a mom and pop round. Yeah. When you get into the later private rounds, you know, if you don't have very much money to invest, it's tough to um, it's tough to get, you know, any any traction with investors. They don't want to add you know, $100 investors to their cap table. Now, I will say that that's changing a little bit. And there are some areas uh, that are becoming more and more amenable to regulation CF crowdfunding investments. Yeah. And th those are uh, opportunities that you can invest in later stages uh, that, that with lower dollar amounts. Now, Michael may be very high net worth, in which case probably most of those stages would be available to him. Okay, so Michael, if you're a high net worth, let's speak. 
go for it. So the next one is from Catherine from Chicago. She asks, how does somebody who is interested in being an LP decide which fund to invest in? Oh, that's a good question. That's a great question, Catherine. Thank you. Um, well, you have to look at the track record of the company, of the venture firm and the general partners. That's one way. I think you can look at the history of them. Just like we look at teams, you should look at the team. You should see what they're investing in. They, you know, is it a sector? If, if you don't like healthcare, definitely I'm not your VC. You know, you have to know <laughs> what what people do and... and um, yeah, I mean, I think those are the big things and then get to know them. I, I, I like to talk to every one of our LPs that I can and get to know them a little bit and, you know, sort of take their measure and see if if you're comfortable, you know. And I think another thing that you should look at is find out what kind of reporting they do, how accessible they are. You know, you don't, you want to be more than a name on their balance sheet. You know, you want to be real and you want to know that they appreciate their fiduciary obligation to you. I think that's key. You want to be made involved or yeah. felt involved at least. Awesome. So we have a last question here, which is from Leah from LA. It's kind of a two-part question. So why do different funds have a minimum requirement to become an LP? And then should I invest $100,000 in one fund or invest in different funds? Those are good questions. Um, so with respect to the minimum investment, that's just math. Uh, if a fund is less than $10, $10 million, they can take, uh, given certain structures, up to 249 investors, I believe. And if they're greater than, they can only have 99 investors. So you can do the math. If you have a $10,000 investment minimum and you get 99 $10,000 investors, then you don't even have a million dollars, right? So that's not a lot of money to work with. It's not bad. But, you know, in terms of driving impact, it it doesn't make you a big fish in the small pond. And yeah. so depending on the targets of a fund, they're going to adjust their minimums appropriately so that they can reach their goals reasonably. Um, so so that's one reason why there are limits. Um, the, you know, and then, of course, if you have some investors who are going to put a million dollars in a fund, then if you're putting in $10,000 in a fund, it, those fund managers are going to be most likely spending their time with the million dollar investors and not with you. So again, it just creates a power imbalance, I think, but, yeah. but not unreasonable to do it, but uh, it seems less ideal. Uh, can you remind me what Leah's second question was? Should I invest $100,000 into one fund or should uh, I invest that into different funds? So that's a really great question. I think on the one hand, if you're able to do, do, to do due diligence on several funds and be comfortable with them, then there's no downside to that. And, you know, the key to doing well in venture capital is diversification. You know, you want to have a diversified portfolio. That's the, the whole Babe Ruth uh, approach that we talked about last time. Um, so having investments, you know, more investments, essentially, which is what that means, will give you more at-bats, which gives you a greater likelihood if everyone's having a similar approach to be successful. That being said, it's a lot more work. So, you know, as long as a singular fund or two funds are well diversified and well managed, um, at some point, I imagine that you're not improving your likelihood of success, overall success that much. 
Um, so I would say that if you could do due diligence on a couple of different funds and spread that money around, it may be better for you, but that also then creates a lot more responsibility to you. Yeah. And again, I think it comes, depends on the fund because if it's a hundred thousand minimum, you know, yeah. it's not going to be the ideal fund to diversify if you only have a hundred thousand to invest. Yeah. And if you can invest more than that, it may be worthwhile taking a more active role with a, with one fund. If you think that the work they're doing is, is good. And certainly if you don't think the work they're doing is good, don't invest it all. Like find another, <laughs> you'll find one. Um, you'll find one. Yeah, you will. But that's a good question. And and how do you approach that? I, I, I think both are probably okay. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us again. Um, so yeah, that's going to be it for today. I, I hope everyone enjoyed listening. Um, our next episode is going to be on how to understand the cap table. So again, if you have any questions, you can email me at martin with a Y, M-A-R-T-Y-N, at globalhealthimpactnetwork.net. Or follow me on Twitter and DM me at Martin underscore Eels, double E-L-E-S. Again, we thank you all for listening. Alvin, again, thank you so much. It's been an honor to be on this podcast with you. Thank you, Martin. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. All right, everybody. Stay safe. And until next time, bye. Bye.